Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Thank you for joining the Impactful Conversations podcast series, part of MoFo Perspectives, where we discuss how successful impact investors and companies achieve positive, measurable, social, and environmental impact. My name is Michael Santos, and I'm an associate at Morrison and Forrester in the Social Enterprise and Impact Investing Group. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Rodney Foxworth, the CEO of Common Future, which is based here in Oakland, California. Rodney, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you joining us. I'm happy to be here, Michael. Thanks for inviting me. So I'd like to start first with a little about your background in the impact investing space. And for those who may not be familiar with Common Future, a little bit about what your company does. Absolutely. And um, I think the best way of answering your question, Michael, um, is to give a little bit of backstory because I sort of stumbled into the impact investing world, actually. My background is a little bit of a combination of things, including uh, community development finance, including um, entrepreneurship, workforce and economic development. And more specifically, my work and background has been around addressing you know, social and economic injustices and equity, specifically in communities of color. Um, I'm from Baltimore City, Baltimore, Maryland. I moved to Oakland about two and a half years ago to become the CEO of Common Future, which at the time was known as the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. And my work prior to coming to Oakland before joining Common Future was really around how do you actually resource and invest in individuals and enterprises, social enterprises that were really wrestling with deconstructing really challenging uh, social injustice and working with philanthropy, working with corporate partners, et cetera, to be able to uh, develop strategies and investment opportunities to do so. And so I kind of stumbled into impact investing because, you know, really I was trying to answer the question, how do we actually ensure that we can mitigate and reduce, you know, the racial wealth gap, the wealth gap more generally, um, and actually put capital to work for communities um, so that communities actually had ownership and opportunity to sort of um, govern and leverage capital in ways that it saw fit rather than sort of being, you know, an add on Mm -hmm. in addition to, which is oftentimes what you see. And so, you know, Common Future, as I said, used to be the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. We've actually been around for 19 years. Uh, So I've been around for quite some time and really began from the localism movement several couple decades ago. And over the last few years, the organization really had begun to focus more specifically around communities that have been impacted by economic injustice, especially communities of color, but also rural communities as well. And so when I came into the organization, we really had this phenomenal network. One, we have uh, a network that spans the U.S. and Canada. We have tremendous on-the-ground practitioners that are really developing and implementing different types of economic models that really serve communities. Um, and then we also have a network of place-based foundations and also high-net-worth individuals who um, are impact investors. Many of them would call themselves financial activists. They see themselves as members of the community um, that's impacted and, and so really want to be in conversation in the community with residents and um, folks that are impacted most by some of these injustices. And so what we do at Common Future today, since we transitioned from the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, we really are an institution that does a few things. One, we aggregate and deploy philanthropic capital 
to invest into individuals and organizations that are really creating dynamic alternatives to how the economy works today, which I think is incredibly important in a COVID-19 world that we live in now, right? And then we also work with foundations on how they can actually leverage their capital to produce positive outcomes. And one of those outcomes is really how do you actually ensure that communities have not just a seat at the table, but are actually, you know, the leads at that table, right? And so working with foundations and other investors to do that. So those are the two principal things that we do. Got it. And, you know, I've heard you discuss before on kind of the economic injustices and the focus of common future as um, a collaborative issue rather than just an issue for a community that is, you know, suffers from uh, the racial wealth gap. I think the name of your organization implies why, but, but can you kind of explain the approach for the why it's framed as a collaborative issue rather than, oh, this is a problem for the African-American community or the Latino community? Yeah, I think this is really incredibly important because so often, Michael, to your question, we think about the racial wealth gap as, oh, this is a problem for African-Americans. This is a problem for Latinos. This is a problem for indigenous peoples. But the reality of it is, is that it is a shared problem. It's a shared challenge, which requires all of us to actually be actively engaged in cooperating with each other. If we were limited to the United States, for example, and again, <laughs> we're really living this out right now in this, in this pandemic that's been happening throughout the world and we're seeing the impacts of it in, in the country. But if you look at it, there were, uh, assuming that things were going to continue, the economic trajectory was going to continue as it has been the last several decades, the median household wealth for African-Americans was projected to drop to zero by 2053, with it dropping to zero around 2073 for, for Latino households in terms of median household wealth. Now, this is, again, this is pre-COVID, <laughs> and, we're, and we're seeing the racialized outcomes of, of how COVID, both on a health perspective, but also in the economic sense. Now, at the same time that African-American wealth was projected to drop to zero, that was only a few short years after the U.S. was going to become a majority, majority people of color. And so what does that mean for an economy in which the majority of individuals living within the country who are powering the economy actually do not have median net wealth, right, in terms of households. And so that is something that we have to reconcile collectively because it has impacts across households, whether you're on or you're on the coasts, whether you're rural America, uh, whether you're white, black. And so I think this is something that um, I think is e even more clearly sort of been brought to view given the pandemic. Yeah, no, agreed. And I think that transitions well into the next kind of discussion point I want to talk about. And also with what you mentioned about common future, looking at alternatives to how the economy currently works. And I think we're kind of being forced right now with COVID pandemic to accelerate some of this, but it's to talk about restorative investing. And so I guess if, if you can maybe explain what restorative investing is, and maybe some examples of companies or organizations that you work with that are practicing restorative investing. I'm really glad that you asked this question because the, the key word to this is restorative, right? And I think we have to reconcile and acknowledge the historic context that we, we're situated in and such to, 
to really understand over not only just the decades, but the centuries, how we got to a place where we even have a racialized wealth gap, for example, mm-hmm. right? That didn't just begin 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, this has been a consistent, there's a structure that's been in place uh, for quite some time, forever, really, in, in terms of the states, that has brought us to this place. Restorative investing is actually acknowledging both the historic and also contemporary impact that capital has had in communities in terms of both being extractive and exploitative. Mm -hmm. And so restorative investing is actually taking a different approach that really does center the needs of individuals and communities that have been most impacted by injustice. And what's interesting about it, though, is that when we look at the traditional framework of impact investing, it's not really actually challenging us to kind of look at the foundation of how investing has actually operated. So you're not necessarily taking into account, you know, the centuries of economic marginalization, for example. And so once you start to factor in those things, you have to begin to think, you know, if I'm trying to, say, produce a a positive social impact in, say, um, the Mississippi Delta, uh, which has been not only divested from, but also extracted from and exploited in terms of not only labor, but also the fruits of the actual land itself, then you have to actually have an approach to investing that really does try to rectify what has occurred over the years. And again, not just in the past, but what's happening today. Um, and so and so restorative investing actually looks at, and so an example of this would be um, the Runway Project, which was started by Jessica Norwood, who is a fellow of Common Future. And Jessica She's from Mobile, Alabama, and she had been wrecked. She, you know, it was very clear to her that the racial wealth gap has an impact on new business creation uh, for African-Americans. And so one of the things that you observe, and and Michael, and you know how this works, is that when you start an enterprise, you know, people say, well, have you asked any of your friends or family to, to kick in some money, you know, to help to get this thing going? Do you have any personal savings or any of those sort of things? Uh, When we look at the racial wealth gap, it's such that for many African-Americans, there's not a lot of friends and family wealth um, to go to. And so that creates a systemic challenge. And so what Jessica was able to do was create the Runway Project, which squarely focuses on this issue. And in her initial project, the initial product, rather, of, of the Runway Project was creating a certificate of deposit with a credit union, Self Help, which effectively allows you to have, as an account holder, you can put your money into this certificate of deposit, and it is actually then invested into African-American-owned businesses, and they began right here in the East Bay. And so it creates an equity-like product for entrepreneurs who are typically excluded from banks, don't have friends and family wealth, et cetera, to be able to actually get started and with their business, right? And, and, And it really does allow for really rectifying some of the challenges that have plagued African-Americans in terms of new business creation. Um, And then another example would be the Boston Ujima Project. Boston Ujima Project takes a much more inclusive approach in terms of involving many community residents that are impacted by day-to-day injustices. Residents that typically do not have their voice heard as it relates to the types of businesses, the types of enterprises, and the types of economic development projects that actually happen in their own backyard. And so for years, the Boston Ujima Project has actually been organizing with, right beside and alongside, uh, individual community residents 
to get the Boston Eugenia project going. And what they've been able to do is actually develop these amazing, you know, 100 plus person assemblies in which not only do you have an economic investment, but you have a vote at the table. And so what it allows for, for residents in Boston to do is actually have a decision making process in which capital that they've invested into actually responds to their own needs rather than capital being really centered in the equation. Got it. And, and so I think obviously within restorative investing, kind of uh, taking a racially explicit lens is important given obviously, uh, like you mentioned, the historical injustices as well as present day. But there's also the component of community ownership and control, right? Which I think definitely with the Boston Ujima project, this comes into play. But even if it's maybe not to that level where, you know, the community is has ownership over a fund, but it's still important to have a say in the investment. So can you talk a little bit about the role of community ownership and control versus more symbolic, uh, I guess, representation, if that makes sense? No, it actually makes a lot of sense. And I think, Michael, we're so much more accustomed to um, the symbolic presence versus actually allowing for enabling for community residents to actually have a say and actually have power. I think the piece of this that's really important when we talk about ownership is about power. So you need to be able to have the power to be able to um, make decisions. And I think this is something that's critically important, particularly in the network, in, in terms of the, the common future network. And to your point, there is a, a pretty broad range of things, but being able to move into community ownership is critically important for a number of reasons. And so I, I'll stay with the Boston Ujima project because the reason why that has been able to be successful is because the, the folks that are behind this effort have really embedded themselves for years in the communities in which are, are represented. And so they've, they've been organizing for quite some time these assemblies, you know, hundreds of people that have been engaged in a number of different things to actually ensure that there's a, a shared sense of identity, to ensure that there is an opportunity for folks who actually exercise their individual and collective voice. And that's critically important because what you find is that in many of these communities, a lot of business opportunities simply do not come into fruition because those who own the capital do not believe that those are the best opportunities for them to invest into. And you have this dichotomy in which community members say, wow, we need a business that provides living wages, that provides affordable but healthy food for our community in a variety of different things. And those who are removed from the community that have the capital are looking to optimize their, their profit, their return on investment. And so by having community as an actual, mm -hmm. not just a, a stakeholder, but a literal shareholder <laughs> that is able to voice opinion, that actually has a vote, that actually is able to influence and determine what types of businesses and enterprises and economic development projects are invested in, that is powerful. It rarely happens. And so when you look at some of the things that Ujima and others are doing, it has to be applauded. Yeah. I think the point you made about, you know, investors who may not be in close proximity to a community and maybe focusing solely on optimizing profit, within impact investing just broadly, I think part of the goal is to make it so profit is not the sole objective, uh, along with kind of the new corporate forms and public benefit corporations. It's to try and 
change that. And I think there's that's kind of a separate discussion as far as how successful is that being. But I think a, a central component within impact investing is, is measuring impact, right? If you're wanting to be impact first, trying to find a measurement. With the work you're doing with Common Future, are there particular metrics you're looking for, such as investment in minority and women founders, job and wealth creation in certain communities? Or is it more about the mindset and framing the issue, uh, in this case, economic inequality, that needs to be addressed and maybe less concerned with, you know, meeting these quarterly metrics? The way that we look at it, Michael, is that um, we first, to sort of answer your question, the, the people that we find ourselves working with, the first thing that we want to ensure is that they have trust within their community, mm-hmm. right? Because that is going to be the biggest opportunity or barrier to any kind of success that they're having, right? Or attempted success. And so I think that's really critical. And I think we don't, we undervalue the role of, of trust and relationships uh, when it comes to this work. And, and so that's the first thing we identify is, is this, are the people that we're working with, are these leaders actually, in fact, fully enmeshed into the communities in which they're doing their work? Are they from that community? Have they been living of that community? Um, so that's, a, that's one critical, like from a values perspective that we take into significant account. The second thing that we think about is, you know, what is the degree in which the work is impacting communities that have been most affected by injustice? And so we take a, an approach where we, we work in rural communities. We work specifically with folks who are underrepresented folks in the impact investing, you know, sphere or, or anywhere, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And so those are, those are broad categories that we look at. We look at it from a values alignment mostly, though, because I think this is where there, I have a lot of concern about like when you talk about the role of metrics in these conversations, mm-hmm. because you can very well, for example, prioritize, say, African-Americans in the South. But are you also prioritizing in such a way in which those folks are actually able to accrue the benefits of the capital that's invested, right? Is there, that's how it links back to the community ownership. It links back to the community wealth building elements of it. And so we, we really like to think about it, Michael, as iterative learning. Uh, we always want to be in a learning mode. Like, so what are, we, what are we learning on the ground? What are we understanding? How do we be in dialogue with folks? It's much harder than having simple metrics. And I don't mean to minimize the, the, the role of metrics, by the way. We just look at it from a learning and being a community perspective and constantly being able to assess leveraging quantitative and qualitative data mm-hmm. to be able to see and having real conversations with yeah. folks, <laughs> um, kind of doing like, you know, somewhat of a journalistic investigation in some ways to ensure that there are the sort of relationships and trust that are um, that we need to be successful. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that goes to your point about uh, having proximity to the communities that are, you know, where capital is being invested and understanding the needs. I want to shift and talk a little bit about impact investing and common future during the the current economic crisis that we're we're dealing with. And and I know it's been a couple of years since you guys have transitioned to common future in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. How have you guys adjusted your approach at all to try and meet the more urgent need uh, given given the crisis? Yeah, and so in in some ways, our our pivot or our change as an organization could not have been more timely. And so actually, we've only been common future for about six or so months. 
and with that represented wasn't just a name change and a rebrand it actually was a new approach and that new approach really goes back to what i opened up my comments with in terms of what we do as an organization we had not previously done the work of aggregating financial resources to be able to provide investment into our network and when i say investment we're really talking about that kind of flexible innovation capital that's required for folks to be able to imagine something different and be able to move forward with covid happening it's in many ways, Michael, um, emphasized uh, the need for this type of resource. Uh, we were able to move some rapid response grants to leaders in our community once when COVID-19 hit. And one of the reasons we were able to move so quickly was because, again, trust and relationships. So, you know, I think there was a Friday, you know, a colleague of mine was in conversation with folks in our network and they were vocalizing you know, how their um, communities were being impacted. And this was, this was before all the stay-at-home orders and all that was happening. And we said, look, we were already planning on being able to move capital into our network. Let's actually do this rapid response opportunity. And so we were able to get cash out the door pretty quickly. But our diligence process was one based on trust and having a relationship with folks. So we only opened up the opportunity to people in our network, folks that we know, folks that we've been in relationship for, with for a number of years. And they're doing remarkable things with those resources, whether it's creating personal protection equipment in their communities where unfortunately, you know, government and the private sector was not producing. These, these on the ground community groups were able to produce on their own, which really speaks to the remarkable capacity that communities have, especially during that time of crisis. And so what we learned from that process was that what a lot of folks in our network really need they need capital that allows them to not just focus on the immediate concerns of the day, but also allows them to iterate, think about different types of forms, think about different types of investment structures and different ways that they can do their work in such a way that if they're limited by traditional types of capital, they're unable to do that. And so we provide philanthropic resource for our folks to be able to, again, lean into what is possible. And so... I think that's such a critical thing for the impact investing community to think about is that, you know, at the end of the day, we still have to consider what is the return on investment, right? And, and in a time like this, uh, with COVID, is even more clear that folks need really friendly capital and need philanthropic resource to be able to innovate and iterate over time. So I, I guess my next question, Ronnie, is how we can leverage this moment, so to speak, without sounding insensitive. Obviously, you know, a lot of people are dealing with a lot of pain during this, this time. But wondering your thoughts on how we can kind of push these new alternative creative models to address some of these needs and avoid maybe the recovery disparities that we saw in 2008. Yeah, it's a great question, Michael. And you know, it's a question that really, I think, requires us to not think about just the investment side of this, but also the policy implication. Inequality is going to be even worse than it was before. We're already seeing how, for example, when you look at some of the major companies, uh, particularly in tech, they have these pretty significant cash reserves that will likely allow them to do further consolidation, right? And so, what will retail look like after COVID? And when I say after COVID, I mean, it's a generational impact. So, but what does retail look like? 
Um, what are things that we're so accustomed to? The opportunities that say minority entrepreneurs and women were able to like engage in, are those opportunities going to be more difficult to attain at this point? So I would say that there's a policy conversation to this because that policy conversation also relates to how we're able to, to ensure that there are different types of forms and structures from a business and corporation perspective that allows for more ingenuity, right? More equity. And I mean equity in the sense of, you know, inclusion, diversity, fairness, <laughs> but also in terms of the amount of economic power that is, that is held. And so I think, you know, a lot of folks in my kind of world are really hopeful that we'll be better off in terms of, you know, being able to be more bold, things that we didn't think were possible could be possible. Yeah. But Michael, it's going to be, a, it's kind of a fight um, because the status quo is not going to just allow for radical thinking. And I don't mean just nece- politically necessarily, but actually just something that's transformative. Um, when we think about the Paycheck Protection Program, for example, PPP, which was initially set up to be able to drive capital to small businesses, particularly those that are minority-owned, et cetera. Well, what we've discovered is that that has not been the case. Um, PPP has failed um, in that instance. And the reality, though, Michael, was that we should have known that because um, the way that the Small Business Administration, SBA, their 7A Guarantee Loan Program was set up, uh, which is with the PPP program leverages that existing infrastructure. Well, the 7A Loan Guarantee Program was already highly racialized. Only about 3% of African Americans were receiving those loans to begin with. And so you're simply perpetuating a lot of those racialized dynamics. Um, So we're seeing things where clearly communities of color, rural communities, et cetera, don't have local banking infrastructure, don't have relationships with banks for a number of reasons that are very clear when you think about like the history of redlining and things like that in the day-to-day redlining that happens. Uh, And so this is the opportunity for us to not only just think about our role as investors uh, and funders, it's actually a time for us to really challenge ourselves to be much better advocates for policy change that'll be beneficial to communities and actually our economy as a whole. Because at the end of the day, Michael, when you, when you look at it, we've got, the, we've got the market economy and we've got the real economy where the stock market can be pretty healthy. And at the same time, have, we're, what, what, 40 million um, folks unemployed uh, on unemployment rolls right now. Yeah. How does that dynamic exist but for the fact that we need significant policy change? Yeah, and I think that ties in well with what we were talking about with restorative investing is, you know, the need, obviously, for having a racial-specific lens for addressing both historical and current injustices and continuing to have a focus on these issues after, you know, like you say, maybe the national economy reached a point of recovery, but not letting the more local economies fall by the wayside. I think, you know, last question I have is, and you kind of touched on this, but I'll give you a chance to add anything additional is, you know, the advice you would have for individuals or companies who are looking to move into the impact space or incorporate ESG or purpose in their their current projects uh, with kind of the work you've done with Bali and Common Future and and just your experience in this sector, um, any kind of advice you have there? I think particularly for investors, Michael, I really... The advice I would have is to really challenge your expectations. When we're, when we're talking about impact, and for us at Common Future, impact can go both ways. You can have a positive or you can have a negative 
impact, right? <laughs> and, and I think this is the thing about impact investing is, is the assumption that it's a positive impact, right? Versus some other forms. And so I would say that first, you know, kind of check your expectations at the door. And when you talk about purpose, what is your why? What is most important to you? When we look at, for example, the historical context with so many of our, the communities that are represented in our network, if you're going to have a purpose-driven approach, then it really does mean ensuring that you're centering the people and communities that are most impacted by your business um, and your investment decisions. And, and I think that is the key thing is to have humility about it. I would say, Michael, that honestly, what I've experienced with different investors and funders is that once you've been able to make that change, like mentally, <laughs> once you've had that shift, the technical side of how you, you do your incorporation and all these things, people are more empowered to do that once they've gotten a sense of what is possible, right? So for example, uh, we're, we work with a, a foundation that has already decided that they're gonna start doing local investment committees in places in which they have a, a, a focus. So instead of you know the foundation forming an investment committee that would then determine what things are invested in in particular communities, they're actually working with folks in the community to do that. And that's, that's a significant shift for an uh, endowed institution to do that. And so, but that's, that's, that was an example of someone sort of challenging themselves to think, think differently and actually be humble and have some humility about it. Yeah. What, what is your why? I like that. Well, Rodney, we are, uh, I've exceeded my time actually. So before we end, I just want to thank you again for joining me today on Impactful Conversations. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you about common future and restorative investing. And I look forward to seeing your continued impact in this field. Uh, for more information about Common Future, you can visit commonfuture.co. That's commonfuture.co. And for more information on MoFo's impact investing practice and for additional resources, please visit Impact Resource Center and our blog, both linked in the podcast description below. And please also make sure to subscribe to the Impactful Conversations podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks again, Rodney. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode.